A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. You know, who are we if we aren't a compilation of all the memories we have and all the experiences that we have? And the only way we hold on to those experiences, our own personal experiences that are unique to us and only us, is through our memory. This week's episode is sponsored by Camp GLP. That's short for Good Life Project. And I'm really excited to share also, we have been featured in USA Today, which is uh, pretty awesome. So what is it? It is a pretty amazing three-and-a-half-day adult summer camp for entrepreneurs, makers, and world shakers, a place where you can come, let your hair down, drop the facade, just be you, have an incredible time, meet people who see the world, you see the world, and simultaneously learn a ton about building cool things, about entrepreneurship, about making, and leave absolutely lit up. If this sounds cool to you, then check out more information at goodlifeproject.com slash camp, or just check the link in the show notes. Thanks so much. On to our show. Imagine waking up one day and realizing that every professional dream that you had ever had, you'd achieved. But along the way, you'd essentially given up your entire life to get there. Well, that's the reality that today's guest, Wendy Suzuki, faced when she woke up one day in the middle of her life, realizing that she was an acclaimed, award-winning neuroscientist, ran her own lab at NYU, but at the same time, everything else in her life had literally ceased to exist. She decided to make a profound change in the way that she leaned into life and the way that she explored everything outside of the laboratory. In the process, not only did she change her life, But that informed a radical shift in the nature of the research she was doing in her laboratory, the way that we've come to understand the brain and how it interacts with things like exercise and movement. That's the conversation we're exploring in today's episode. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. So hanging out here with you today, we're in New York City. Um, 
And you run uh, a neuroscience lab, mm -hmm. teach at NYU, yes. acclaimed labs, all sorts of awards, new book out. Um, I'm always fascinated when I have a chance to sort of find somebody who's really devoted so much of their life to this thing and mm -hmm. really risen up and become somebody who's um, who's accomplishing incredible things in a field. Where, like, what was the genesis of this for you? When, if you track it back, I mean, were you the kid with a science book when you were five years old or was this – how did this unfold in the early days? <laughs> so um, there was a somewhat circuitous route. So when I was really little – I wanted to be a Broadway star mm -hmm. and I wanted to sing and dance and be on the stage, but I was also very shy. So it was kind of a secret <laughs> Broadway dream for a long time. But then I realized that, you know, um, I come from a pretty serious family. Mm -hmm. And so um, math and science and being a doctor or a lawyer uh, was very big in in the family. So yeah. um, I decided that I liked science and um, I was good at science. And so I headed towards college uh, to look at to to study some courses, some kind of science. Yeah. I didn't know what kind. And um, there was a specific day that I knew that I was going to become a neuroscientist. Mm. And it was the very first day of my very first semester at UC Berkeley, which is my family's alma mater. So I got in there, really proud to be there. And I took this freshman seminar class called The Brain and Its Potential with an amazing professor, Marion Diamond. And um, she she was so kind of larger than life to me. She really, to this day, my memory of her is like a science rock star mm -hmm. because she was very tall and very beautiful. And she always had, you know, perfect hair and, and, um, really nice clothes, always with a, a crisp white lab coat over it. And that very first day she had, um, she not only looked very striking, but she had a hat box on the table in front of her. <laughs> and, um, what she did was she opened up that hat box and she pulled out the very first real preserved human brain that I ever saw. And that just blew me away. You know, a lot of people go, ooh. Like, right. A lot of, I'm sure a lot of classes like, were yeah. just like freaking out a little bit like, ah. It was so fascinating to think that that thing was in my head. Mm. And the other thing, memory that I have is the reverence which with, with which she, she held that brain. I mean, um, and she said, you know, this was somebody's personality before. And so it, it demands respect. And, and you can tell by the way that she was touching it, that she had so much respect for this, for this structure. Um, but the thing that really got me was when she started talking about her kind of big finding in the field, which is that um, she was interested in how much the brain can change in response to the environment. Is the brain just fixed? Or are we just, right. you know, destined to be our, you know, just what Whatever it and is. these were probably the days where the concept of neuroplasticity and that being possible was was really a, fr a fringe idea, or at, sort of like completely it, outlawed. Almost, less right? than a fringe, it was not no idea at all. Right. No, sort of everybody like you believed get what you get by the time you're an adult, and that's it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And she tells a story that so they did these um, experiments, and all they did was well, all they did. Fantastic idea. They raised rats in these enriched environments, which is kind of like a Disney world of environments with lots of toys and lots of games and not, not games, lots of toys and lots of other rats to play with. Big environment. I'm just, and, I'm just thinking of like, you know, like PhD candidates walking around Disney taking notes on that. That's right. That's right. I mean, we should. I, I think it has implications for what experiments we can do today. And she compared those brains of rats that were raised in Disney world, um, you know, theoretical Disney World, with rats that were raised in an impoverished environment with no toys and just a, a, another rat or two. And what she found that was so striking was that the outer covering of the brain, the cortex, actually got thicker in the rats that were raised in these enriched environments compared to the impoverished rats. So these were adult rats. So that meant that the enriched environment actually changed the physical structure of the brain. And she tells a story of the first meeting she went to where she presented these results. And she was the only woman at the meeting. This was in the late 1950s, early 1960s. And she said, some guy in the back raised his hand and said, young lady, that brain cannot change. And, but she was right and he was wrong. And that kind of ushered in this 
this whole field of neuroplasticity with that experiment. That's amazing. So, so you uh, you really had the opportunity to study with a woman who sounds like she was very much a pioneer and a visionary Absolutely. in this space. Absolutely. And where did you go from there? Because I know you ended up working with her eventually. Well, some, I, I did level, my right? undergraduate right. Um, um, thesis with her, so I got to work in her lab. Um, she was also the best teacher that I ever experienced in my whole career. So you, break that down a little bit for me, because yeah. what, what made that so? So what made her such a good teacher was her intense curiosity. So she was a, um, a specialist in anatomy, gross human anatomy and neuroanatomy, brain, brain anatomy, brain parts. And, um, you know, some anatomy classes that you could take. I don't know if you ever took any anatomy classes. I have. And, yeah. it, and I, I'm a geek with this stuff, but yeah. still very often it's taught as sort of like mass rote memorization. It could be as exciting as reading, you know, last year's tax books. <laughs> and, but, when Marion taught it, it really came to life because she put it in the context of this is you. This is really a, um, a study, a class about you understanding yourself. Don't you want to do that? Mm. And everybody was like, yeah, I really want to do that. And not only that, but, you know, she, by this time, she'd been teaching these classes for decades and, um, Yet every single class, she remained curious about, um, either aspects. I remember one day she said, um, you know, we can take a, we could teach a whole class on the psychology of hair and, and what's behind the psychology of hair. Just, you know, things that come to mind as we're talking about different anatomical parts. And, and I don't know if she thought about that before, but just sharing that with, with people, it was always curiosity and questioning and, um, and, you know, I grew up in science with this idea that that curiosity was the cornerstone of what it really meant to be a scientist. And that was such a gift. I only realize and appreciate now, but that's where it came from. So as long as I have you here and you are a, a expert on the brain, yeah, talk to me a little bit about curiosity and where is that in the brain? Is it something that is it is it part you know nurture? Is it part nature? Is it just there? Is it not there? Is it trainable? Is it not trainable? Because yeah. it's a fascination of mine. Because what I've experienced, and I'm sure you have also, is that curiosity becomes such an exquisite driver for yeah. a life well lived. Yeah, you know, if you have that seed, even if stuff is bad in your life, if yeah. you've got the seed of curiosity somehow you find your way through and you yeah. start to elevate again. Yeah. Is there, have you done any work sort of like looking into where that originates or, or is there a way or even? You know, I think there could be a way to study curiosity. Um, and I have not done, I think people are starting to get, get interested in creativity, imagination, yeah. curiosity, and we're still at the fledgling um, area. But I, I love that you asked me this question because the book that I'm reading right now, it's on my on my uh, phone, is um, uh, by Brian Glazer. Yeah, curious yeah, right. yeah. Awesome, And right? So, yeah. so I love that. And, and he tells about his lifetime of these curiosity conversations. And that has just inspired me so much. I had, I had had a version of that within my colleagues in science, which mm. is a whole world. Even my department, it, you know, grows from molecular kinds of studies all the way up to uh, modeling and things like that. But what he's talking about is going out and, you know, interviewing President Putin on one right. hand and, you know, the woman who, um, I love that story about the woman who uh, survived the torture in Peru, yeah. um, on the other hand, and, and the way that that has infused his work. Mm. Um, but it's, I, I love the story because he's a producer, a movie producer, and you might think that's helpful. But it would help me as a neuroscientist and, and you as a, as a, you know, podcast, uh, um, guru, uh, an entrepreneurial guru. Um, and I just love that idea. And I wish I knew how to, um, study curiosity. What I can tell you and what I talk about in the book is, um, the observation that I had in myself that when I started exercising more and, um, uh, really doing it at a, at a pretty good level, really regularly, I saw a lot of changes in my brain, including, uh, I noticed a lot of changes in my own brain, including, um, better memory, better attention, better mood. But the other thing that I noticed is that I got more creative and mm. imaginative and possibly more curious, but it came out in 
um, in, in the realm of creativity, I started trying new things that I had never tried before. And I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. But it turns out that there is some really hardcore neuroscience evidence that suggests why that may be. So exercise enhances the birth of new brain cells in um, a structure that is really important for long-term memory. It's called the hippocampus. And I've studied that structure for about 20 years now. Um, and so everybody thought they knew what the hippocampus does. It does long-term memory, right? Well, people started testing um, subjects with damage to their hippocampus. Of course, they had a bad memory, but they started to notice that they also had a very difficult time imagining situations that they had never experienced before. Mm. So with age and education matching, you could ask two sets of people, one with hippocampal damage and one without, who had never been to a tro tropical beach before, either one of them. Describe for me a tropical beach. You know, you've never been there, but what does it, what does it look like? And, you know, most people would tell you stories about, you know, fruity drinks with, with, uh, right, little yeah. umbrellas in it and the color of the sand and the color of the ocean. And these patients with hippocampal damage could barely say there's sand, there's water, and, um, that's about it. And even when, when encouraged. And we thought, well, I don't know what that is, but multiple people had shown this. And not only that, when you brain image people imagining certain things, what do you get? You get activation of your hippocampus. Mm. And so the idea is that exercise is not only uh, potentially enhancing my memory because I, I'm uh, getting more hippocampal cells, but it might have been enhancing my ability to imagine possibilities in the future, which could be the core of curiosity yeah, and, and that's creativity. Fascinating. So, and then you brought up a whole bunch of things that I want to follow up yeah. on. Um, you know, especially exercise and how, like all the different ways that it changes your brain. And, yeah. and I want to actually kind of go step by step through a couple of big things there because mm -hmm. you write so beautifully about it. Um, but I want to fill in a little bit of the story yeah. um, before okay. we get there. So you go from doing um, your PhD work and then from there, where do you go? <laughs> yeah. So I do my PhD work. I do um, a postdoctoral fellowship at NIH for four and a half years um, with, in a great lab. So I learned uh, uh, yet another uh, way to study memory function. My, my whole focus was on parts of the brain important for memory, including the hippocampus. Um, and then... Hmm? What, what is it about memory at that time that's drawing you in? I mean, what's the fascination for you around the brain and memory? Yeah, it was... Um, you know, it was the idea that memory is really what makes us who we are. It, it, I mean, you know, who are we if we aren't a compilation of all the memories we have and all the experiences that we have? And the only way we hold on to those experiences, our own personal experiences that are unique to us and only us, is through our memory. So out of all the cognitive functions, it seemed to me at the time to be the most fascinating um, and also understandable. So how that was also very naive. <laughs> I thought it was understandable. <laughs> it's still very difficult, but um, I thought um, what more fascinating thing to do than to um, look at. And again, I was coming from Marion Diamond's work uh, all about brain plasticity. Well, this was a everyday form of brain plasticity that we did Sometimes multiple times a day, multiple, well, certainly multiple times a day, multiple times an hour, multiple times a minute. Mm. And what if I can figure out what the, those kind of dynamic changes in the brain um, look like when they were happening? That that fascinated me. Yeah. I mean, a certain, to a certain extent, I guess you could say that memory is the seed of identity. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. You know, with that. and and totally. it's and I you know I I I've known people. I'm sure people listening to this will have known people, and they may have endured some level of brain trauma in their lives. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest challenges, not only for the person who's been through it, but for the people all around them, mm -hmm. is that they may look exactly the same on the outside. Yeah, but the the trauma, the change in the brain, the traumatic brain injury, they're quite literally a different person. Mm -hmm. Um, but they look. They look the same. From all intents and purposes, to yeah. be the same person. So it's like, it's such a profound um, struggle, I think, for so many people because of this cognitive dissonance. Yeah, yeah, it is exactly. It's the same thing. Um, I always remember something that Marion Diamond said when I was taking the classes, her classes, which is, um, people that suffer from deafness have the most difficult time because nobody can tell. 
that you're deaf. Uh-huh. And so it's hard to get over that. You look completely normal. What, why, why are you having problems? And they have this extra hurdle. When you're blind, everybody can see that you're using a cane. Um, but uh, deafness is has an extra That's difficulty. That's I didn't even think of it. So there's this whole social dynamic overlay yeah. that yeah. really changes it. So you go deep into memory and yeah. especially how memory works in the brain. Now, let uh-huh. me throw out one other myth because yeah. there's – and what's fun is that you do a lot of myth busting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love talking to people who are actually in the lab – doing the research to find out what the legit thing is. Yeah, yeah. There's this thing that the self-help world loves to throw around. Uh-huh. You've seen written in books and all over the internet that at any given moment in time, we only use like 5 or yeah. 10% of our brain. Yeah. Talk to me about this. So that is so untrue. And it's so untrue because, um, for example, about 70% of your whole brain is um, devoted to processing visual information. Just think about how much of the day are you processing some kind of visual information? Mm. And that activates that whole 70% of, of the brain. So even just right there, you have, you're using so much of your brain. And, um, so, so I, I have wondered and I've read theories about how come this myth has right. been. Right. Where, where, where's it come from and why does it still propagate like that? I think, um, one, one idea is that it's kind of built on this idea of uh, hopefulness, that if you're only using 10%, then we all have 90% to go. And isn't that great? And and that's not to say that that totally isn't true. The, the work on brain plasticity that I and many others have done has shown that despite the fact you're using so much of your brain, um, there's other avenues to change and grow and improve through many, many different forms of brain plasticity. So you still have lots and lots of potential. It's not, it's just not like a black hole of 90% of the brain that's right. not being used, which is not true at all. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you see the, the, this dystopian future movies where somebody figures like a pill where right. all of a sudden you can go from 10% to a hundred percent. Yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden you're walking through walls and morphing energy <laughs> and all sorts of madness like that. Um, but I do like, I think it's interesting how you brought up like the connection. Maybe what it really is, is it's just sort of a pop psychology way to, to drop something into our daily experience, which gives us some sense of hope. And yeah. even if it's factually complete mythology, yeah. the intention is that you know, no matter where you are today, no matter what the state of your brain is, how it's wired, that there's a certain amount of shifting and yeah. rewiring and growth that can still happen. So you you go deep into the um, memory rabbit hole and you start to build a career and you mm-hmm. become a very well-established researcher and running your own lab yeah. and tenure professor at mm-hmm. NYU. And, um, and you are like the, you know, the dream scientist. You've got, it sounds like from, from the outside looking <laughs> in, you've got like the, the life that every scientist dreams of living. Yeah. But you hit a point. Yeah. Where you're kind of like, wait a minute. Whoa, yeah. Wait, is that I've, all that are, right. there is? So tell yeah. me about this awakening. Yeah. So, um, you know, ever since I first realized I wanted to become a neuroscientist when I was in college, my dream was to have my own lab and to have tenure. And um, so I worked really, really hard. And, and I had this question that I loved, fascinated, still fascinated with the hippocampus and memory um, and um, had a vibrant lab. And, and they were um, and they are uh, fantastic. And I got tenure. And so it's like, yeah, just like the dream. It's like, yes, I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. And then it's like, OK, what else is there? Because how I like to describe it is that my lab life and my like scientific interaction life was like that dinner party that you never want to leave. There's always somebody interesting on the other side of the table to talk to, lots of interesting conversations. And if this conversation ends, you go to the next person and there's also a fascinating conversation. And it was great. And I had great working relationships. But I had very few close personal relationships. So in contrast to the dinner party, my social life was more like one of those Clint Eastwood movies with the deserted ghost town (laughs) and tumbleweeds, you know, rolling around the dirt roads. And um, it really did feel like that. And it's like, hmm, something's a little out of balance here. And and the other thing that was completely out of balance is I spent so much time in the lab and focusing on work that I, I was always in my head, 
using my brain to think about other people's brains uh, and never in my body. And mm. I had gained 25 pounds. And, you know, I grew up in California, quite active, but I was so determined to 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 do this, um, to, to get tenure that I neglected all of that. And I knew something had to change. So yeah. that was a huge turning point for me. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I've, I've spoken with so many people and this has happened in my own life also, actually a number of times probably where there's some sort of big shaking event yeah. that kind of makes you, you know, zoom the meta lens back a little bit and, and look down on, on, you know, into your life and, and kind of ask the question, is, is this what I signed up for? Yeah. And you know, like, do I want to shift gears and potentially even endure disruption in the right. name of doing that moving forward? Yeah. What's interesting is, is, Sadly, what I've seen is that for so many people, it's a traumatic and harmful event. Mm-hmm. Um, some very often some sort of health incident or mm-hmm. the loss of somebody close yeah. to them that kind of makes them go through this. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting for me and you is this, you achieved this thing you've been working for for essentially your whole career. Yeah. It's sort of like the thing that everyone works towards. Right. So it wasn't this big negative thing. It was sort of like, Every bit of energy that you had for years and years and years was going to achieve this one thing. And granted, right. you, you had you had deep questions and you were yeah. researching, but mm-hmm. the big, the pinnacle career thing was this. Yeah. And then you get there and it's kind of like, you know, this moment where you're like, okay, almost like, well. That's it. Right. <laughs> is this it? Or more yeah, like, and, and like, is the, that it? <laughs> right. And and I've gotten it. And But what have I, like, what's the price that I've paid to right. get this one thing? And do mm-hmm. I want to keep paying it? Because right. Now I have it. So Matt, and it's like zoom the lens back again. Yeah. So yeah. that starts you looking at the broader scope of your life. Right. And your health as well. What's, right. what's interesting um, about the book you've written is it's this really fascinating narrative of your um, your fitness life, your uh-huh. your social life, mm-hmm. your foodie life, yeah. um, and your research life. You know, like woven in there is this really fascinating neuroscientist stuff that's being done by the actual researcher, which yeah. is what I love. Um, and it, it's so compelling to see how that became this tremendous turning point and yeah. you started to weave them all together. Yeah. And then it all kind of fed your research life in a profoundly different way. It did. It ended up, I mean, I feel like the whole book boils down to how, um, neuroscience has affected and informed my life, but then how my life then informed my own neuroscience research. And, um, you know, it took me like the the two and a half years that I wrote the book to realize that that was the core. But there's this there's this profound interaction that I used what I got good at at neuroscience and I kind of turned it on myself and I helped it it helped me actually shift out of a situation that wasn't so good. It's not, I don't feel that it's good to be that unbalanced and not have uh, a good social life to match your, you know, really thriving, um, um, career life. And, um, and so I changed it, but it took, Many years. I mean, I yeah. don't want people to think that suddenly okay. I made that realization and, and be- changed. And before we go into the change, because I want to dive into it because it's fascinating. Um, I got to ask you what what I would sort of call the whiplash question. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen the movie Whiplash. No, um, I almost watched it the other night. It's but... essentially, you know, a, a maniacal, you could easily argue sadistic yeah. um, jazz band teacher who yeah. basically teaches people at the most elite music school in the world that uh-huh. you essentially have to have somebody driving you until you either become the best in the world or die. Right. Oh, God. It's been my, ex- I've had some exposure to the world of academic science uh-huh. and tell me if, if I'm off in yeah. sort of like my observation from the outside looking in is that in some labs and in some spheres of academia, especially science, especially research labs, yeah. that there's a similar ethic. Yeah. Um, and that, that there are that there is sort of like a community of people who literally are willing to go to that place yeah. in the name of being at the absolute top. Right. I think you're absolutely right. I was definitely in that camp mm. for many, many years. It's like this is so hard. You have to devote every single fiber of your being to it. And um and I loved it. Well that that purpose. It was easy because there was only one thing to focus on. Um, And in fact, then I always get the question saying, well, Wendy, you know, you made this change. You're already a tenured professor. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like it it doesn't count. You wouldn't have been able, you wouldn't have gotten to this place had you done that earlier on when you were doing that. And um, of course, I don't have the data, but my strong feeling is that I am more productive now, irrespective of whether I have tenure or not. I'm more productive. I'm more creative. I'm 
I'm a better scientist now that I, I have a balanced time frame and I don't spend every single waking moment thinking about or preparing for science. And I let these other things, these other forms of creativity and, and life kind of infuse. And that's what made that's what has made my science so much more creative in the last five years. Yeah, than I, what. I so agree with you, and I think it's counterintuitive when you're in, you know, when you're in the bubble looking out. You can't imagine any way of getting to that place you want to get yeah. to without spending every waking hour of your life doing this thing, this one thing, and nothing but. But right. when you're outside looking in, you actually start to taste life again, and then you start to actually see that no, it's the experience that I just had, like savoring this moment that mm-hmm. now informs a new question that I'm going to bring to my laboratory or maybe lets me see how two disparate pieces of data come together to form a third and pattern yeah. recognized because you have data points that exist outside of the laboratory and mm-hmm. now fold into them. Exactly. And it just, you know, it's been my, my, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a researcher, but I spend a lot of time asking questions. It's been my same experience. Like there have been times where I'm deep down a rabbit hole trying to build something, you know, yeah. in, in the business world, maybe. Yeah. And I find that, you know, sometimes things blow up or I'll blow up uh-huh. and I'm forced to pull back yeah. and reclaim the parts of my life. Yeah. And you start to realize, oh, well, actually everything works better. The right. business moves faster. You yeah. come up with better ideas and mm-hmm. solutions. Um, and then what I love is that you took this then and didn't just start to, you know, change the way that you were living, but you changed your research and you started yeah. really exploring, okay, how do these things affect the brain? Like, why is this yeah. making me feel better? Why? Right. What's this actually doing? Right. Um, let's talk a bit about how you brought exercise into the laboratory. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I went to the gym and I got fit and I noticed all these brain changes and it was, it was a legitimate scientific curiosity. It's like, this is a big effect. I am writing better because I, at this point when I'm exercising more and I want to emphasize that you can't do experiments through introspection. This was, this was a self observation that I used as, as the basis of a hypothesis right. that I then tested. This was like your N of one. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, but, you know, it's, I'm not, uh, you can use it. It's just not, I'm not going to conclude every, anything just based on me. Um, but it does work for me and that's valuable as well. So, um, the first thing that I decided to do is, um, uh, use a trick that professors know all too well, which is whenever you want to learn something new, teach a new class on it. So I decided to teach a new class um, about the effects of exercise on brain function. I was going to go over all of the, you know, previous research from the animal and the human studies. And um, then I thought, well, I don't want to just teach the students about exercise. I want them to experience that rush and that adrenaline and endorphin rush that I have felt and enjoyed and um, kind of got addicted to uh, as I've made this journey. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to have them exercise. Um, but NYU doesn't pay for exercise instructors to come in because they pay me right. to teach all the classes. And so I um, said, well, I'll go and get certified as a group fitness instructor and teach this class that I'm going to so whatever did, did five you, times a week. Did you tell any of your colleagues that you were going to do this? Did they think you were nuts? <laughs> yeah. I didn't go around advertising right. that I was doing, but I had to tell somebody because I had to propose it to the education committee. Right. And they, I was at the meeting where they were considering my, my proposal. <laughs> and, you know, they trusted me enough to know that there's serious science underneath it. But they were very curious to know whether the classroom that I was going to share with everybody else was going to be really smelly and sweaty (laughs) after my class. And I said, don't worry, I'll bring fans in and we'll air it out. And that was the main thing they were concerned about. So I went and, you know, to NYU's credit, they paid for my teacher training because the only reason I was doing this was to teach this class. And actually, I've also taught for the last six years uh, a free um, weekly exercise class um, to the NYU community. So I, I do that as well. But for this class, um, I taught the students an hour of aerobic exercise, uh, and then we'd follow that up with an hour and a half lecture discussion about what exercise was doing to their brains from all these different kind of points of view. Mm-hmm. And um, that sounds all well and good, but it was totally transformative to actually bring exercise into the classroom and actually have the professor teach the students exercise because it it brought in a whole different dynamic 
um, on that very first day of class, I'll never forget, uh, I walked in and, you know, I, I was clad head to toe in spandex <laughs> best workout gear it's like the, yes and your new neuroscience professor yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know they knew that it was an exercise class they all signed up they were all excited because nobody had taught a class like this and i told them they had to wear workout clothes but they were really scared they didn't know what to expect i bet and um so and i was a little bit scared too because i had never you know i was in this classroom that i had been lecturing in for the last 15 years or so. And here I was going to stand up and and teach this exercise class. And so um, after some, you know, very nervous laughter, we got into it and they were just great. They loved the workout. They were very interactive. It's a workout called um, Intensati and it combines physical movements from kickboxing and dance and yoga with positive spoken affirmation. So it's very, very interactive. Okay. So let's talk about this too, because I know Intensati. Yeah. Um, and it's it's the type of exercise class where if you're if you're not if you've never done it before and you belong to a health club yeah. and you walk by the room yeah. and you look in and you see the people doing it, yeah. a lot of people look in there and say to them, Oh, I'm never going in yeah. there. <laughs> not because it's not physical, it doesn't right. look like a great workout, but yeah. the whole time you're yelling these affirmations. Yeah. Yes. And once you do it and you get into it, you know, everyone just kind of rolls with it. Exactly. But from the outside looking in, you're not only asking your your students, you know, yeah. come do an aerobic exercise class right. with me. You, you picked a class which brings in like sort of like shouting out affirmations oh, yeah. too, which is, has got to ramp the anxiety level through the roof. Well, it would have, but I didn't tell them what the workout was. <laughs> I just said, come for the workout. I get to choose the workout because right. I'm teaching the class. So they have ah, no choice so, in that. So sneakiness is part of the whole <laughs> teaching methodology. Here. And once I got them indoctrinated, they thought it was great fun. Yeah. And um, it's funny, people have pointed out because I, you know, everybody knows that I love Broadway. And um it's like this was really a way to bring a little bit of Broadway into my into my classroom. Right, for I'm the very thinking first like time. that kid that we started out talking about. Yeah, you know, that's coming full circle. Exactly, right? exactly. So, so you do this, and the other, I guess this has also got to have just a profound effect on the classroom dynamic Absolutely. in terms of the students becoming more open, like yeah. just like raising the level of, of energy and right. thought process within the conversation. It so did, and. Um, you know, I challenged them explicitly. I said, you guys are so interactive with me during the class. We're yelling. I'm going around. I'm having them, you know, punch my hands. And and, um, and I said, I want you to be just as interactive when we get to the lecture part. I don't want you to just sit there again. This is completely interactive from the beginning of the class to the very end of the class. And they totally took me up on that challenge. And it was easier to to yell and not yell, but, but, but raise your hand and ask questions and get a real conversation going when you have just sweated with your professor compared to when it's, you know, this, this professor at the front of the room and it's hard to ask questions. Yeah. So I think I definitely got, I know I got this great, um, rapport going with the students because I brought the exercise. Yeah. In. No, I love that. Now, did you do any, any benchmarking in with the students beginning and after to see yeah. how this experience had just changed them? on an individual level? Yeah. So um, so I did it in two different ways. I realized pretty early on that, um, so this was going to be fun. It was going to be um, a way to, to bring exercise in the classroom. But I realized that they would be my perfect research subjects. And I actually made them the research subjects in my very first exercise study that I did by testing all the students at the beginning of the semester and at the end of the semester on a a variety of different tasks, focused on a task that we know um, is supposed to be very sensitive to um, hippocampal function, a memory memory task. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I also talked to them about it. We, we, especially at the end, we had a wonderful conversation, both semesters that I did it. about what, what did you think about this class? How did this class change? And all of them said, I kept thinking about those affirmations. The affirmations kept running through my mind huh. all week long. And that wasn't surprising to me because that's exactly what happened to me when I was a student. And even more when I had to develop and write the affirmations and teach them right, yeah. to the students. And so um, there's there was a an interesting shift. There was the exercise, but there was this kind of mindset shift because I am now having them run through their mind saying, I'm strong. I believe I will succeed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this whole range of positive affirmations that we said. So 
I, I guess that also brings in, it's almost like sort of, um, on the one hand, it's really cool. On the other hand, there's a set of almost like confounding variables there. Yes. It's like, is it the exercise? Mm-hmm. Is it the enhanced social dynamic? Is it the effect of the intentional language, you right. know, the affirmations? Right. And I guess it's probably kind of hard to tease apart what yeah. any of the relative effects are in Absolutely. that Absolutely. Right? You cannot tease it apart. All you can say is you can ask, I ask the question, what is the effects of, what are the effects of once a week intensati for a semester in healthy college students. So that was the specific right. question. Not about exercise, not about the combination or not the combination. And um, so we can ask, you know, what is the effect? Remember, it was only once a week they were doing this. These were healthy, you know, bright NYU students. And what we got was a small but significant effect. They got actually significantly faster. There was better reaction times in my students um, uh, at the end of the semester relative to uh, a, a set of control students that didn't take any exercise in their elective class. Mm. And um, and you might think, oh, that's a subtle, subtle effect. But to me, that was so exciting because I expected nothing. These are healthy young students. And what we found with just once a week, you can see an effect. What would happen if we actually did three times a week and really started to have a significant effect on the cardiorespiratory output? That's a major question that I'm going for right now. Yeah. And, and, What's I guess the, the other question for me is, what's actually happening in the brain? That's what's changing through yeah. this process that's causing these effects. Yeah. So I can tell you about what we know that's changing. So one thing that's clear is that increased exercise in people will improve your your attention functions. So there there are good studies, um, strong studies that have shown that in a variety of different uh, ways. Um, the other thing that's changing is your brain milieu, because we are increasing and changing and shifting levels of a variety of different neurotransmitters, mood neurotransmitters. This is why we feel so good after we, we work out. Serotonin, noradrenaline, dopamine are all increasing with exercise, as well as endorphins. And all of these are causing positive, positive reward, positive mood, um, the other thing that's happening, as I mentioned, is exercise is enhancing a growth factor called um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, and that is enhancing the um, survival and stimulating the birth of those new brain cells in the hippocampus. And so what are those cells doing? We think they're doing at least three different things. One, these cells uh, are contributing to memory, in, uh, long-term memory processes. So in rodents, if you just give them access to exercise, they will perform better on long-term memory tasks. Second, we um, the hippocampus is also important for anxiety, that is uh, uh, controlling mood and anxiety. And um, uh, better performing hippocampi, uh, you have better control of your mood. Um, so it's probably contributing to mood in the same way, in a similar way as increases of serotonin levels in mm. the brain. And the third is what we talked about earlier, which is um, the hippocampus is now being implicated in imagination. And so at the same time that you're improving long-term memory, which is making associations with things that happened in the past, you're probably improving your ability to make new associations with things that might happen in the future, which is imagination. Yeah, no, I love that. It, my, it's interesting. My, my first exposure to, uh, to, the, to what this chemical you talked about, BDNF, mm-hmm was um, through, I think it was John Rady's book, Spark, mm-hmm. when he yeah. t- where he, where he, he called um, BDNF miracle grow for the brain. Yes, yeah. Um, and and I, I always, it, it made me wonder, is, is, it, is it changing the way that the brain is wiring or is it literally growing, is it somehow growing new cells, new neurons? Is it, um, so maybe this gets to another interesting question and, mm-hmm. and maybe some myth busting here uh-huh. because there's, so when we talk about neuroplasticity, when we talk about, you know, people are like, well, we used to think that the brain couldn't change and it couldn't grow, but now we know that it can change and it can grow. Yeah. Can you actually grow new brain cells or are we just taking what's there and sort of creating a denser net and, and mm. ha- what's actually happening? Yeah. So um, there are only two locations in the human brain um, where as adults, you could actually grow brand new brain cells. And this has been clearly demonstrated in in lots of different experiments, strongly replicated. The first area is the one we just talked about, the hippocampus, important for long-term memory. And the second brain area is the olfactory bulb, a structure critical for ability to smell. And um, 
that doesn't increase with exercise. If you exercise, you're only going to stimulate uh, the birth of new brain cells in the hippocampus. What stimulates the new brain cell growth in the uh, olfactory bulb, you know, it'll continue, but how you can kind of beef it up even more is by enhancing your olfactory environment. So rats given access to lots of different smells during the day, they will have a bigger olfactory bulb than rats that don't get any more smells. So that literally will grow new olfactory brain cells. Yes. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So so if you have because it's funny because then if you have I mean there are professions in the world yeah. where their job exactly. is to delineate Smells yes. and aromas, you know, like coffee. Yes. People who are, you know, like, and, and sommeliers yeah. and, you know, like people who are in the perfume and yeah. the essence. So what you're saying is it's, it's, it's not entirely uh, outlandish to say that because that's what they do all day, every day, if you actually took a look at their brains. Right there's a reasonable chance that that area of the brain would literally have grown yes. new brain cells through the process of their work. Exactly, exactly. Huh. In fact, I think I... That's cool. Do I <laughs> say that? That's one thing I thought about in the book. That right. might be suggested in the book about, you know, maybe sommeliers have bigger olfactory bulbs. It is fascinating. And the other fascinating question is, well, if you're getting new brain cells in there, does it disrupt the old memories that are you yeah, know, in, so in there. Where are we that, with that? No idea. Huh. No idea. Um, what we know is that uh, it does uh, exercise with smelling different things will enhance your olfactory bulb. Those people tend to be the people that are really good at it. So it doesn't seem to disrupt their brain. But you never know until you really go and, and, and study it. And to my knowledge, nobody has studied the neurobiology of um, olfactory systems and plasticity in professions like sommeliers. Hmm. And I think that would be really fascinating. It would, right? Yeah. But then I guess you would always have to, I guess then the question would be, even if you took a look, you know, you have to do it over a period of you know, probably months or years. Before, yeah. And then you couldn't just look at a whole bunch of people and say, well, it's bigger than other people because you don't know if that actually is what brought them right. to it because genetically they just kind of landed with larger or whether exactly. it's developed through behavior. So um, the way to do it is the way that they did it by when they studied um, London taxicab drivers. Mm-hmm. So there is an experiment that I discuss in, in the book that's a very famous one done by uh, a friend and colleague of mine, Eleanor McGuire, at, um, at University College London, where um, the hippocampus is, I, as we've been saying, is important for long-term memory, but also very involved in spatial long-term memory. And um, one of her first studies showed that... Um, London taxicab drivers that have to pass this crazy test um, of the thousands and thousands of streets in London, they have larger posterior hippocampi than normal people. But you thought, well, maybe they're good at spatial stuff anyway. So they started out with a bigger hippocampus. And so in the next series of experiments, she took a whole bunch of London taxicab driver wannabes and followed them all through their training and then compared the ones that passed and the ones that didn't pass. So they got all the same experience and um, they, they measured their hippocampi at the beginning of the training and at the end of the training. The ones that passed had significant enlargement of their hippocampus from the beginning to the end. The ones that did not pass did not have any significant change mm. in their hippocampus. So it was likely actually trainable. It was trainable. Huh. It was trainable. A, yeah. Yeah. I read a study, um, yeah, I'm the complete pop neuroscience geek. It's yeah. just like it's constantly reading research and trying to figure out what the words mean. <laughs> yeah. um, there was a study that I read some five or six years ago that my recollection is it came out of University of Portland um, or oh. University of Oregon, Eugene. Yeah. And they did a very short, intense measure of um, meditation, which I want to talk to you more about in just mm. a moment. But mm-hmm. but the, the, the research showed if I'm remembering correctly, that in a really short window of time, under uh, MRI, they were able to see an increase in what they call the gray gray matter in the brain, sort of yeah. the front part of the brain. Yeah. So, but what you're saying is that's not that they're like meditation didn't grow new brain cells. 
So when they say something like that, what's yeah. actually happening? Yeah. Is it a That's thickening a of existing yeah. things? Or what's- so there's lots of things that could change the thickness of this outer cortex, the outer covering, which is they refer to as gray matter. Right. Um, for example, glia cells, which are the support cells, do divide and 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 um, uh, grow in the brain, just not the neurons, the brain mm. cells. And so, um, for example, Einstein, one of the big differences in his brain is he didn't have more neurons, he had more glia cells, hmm. suggesting that he had more support for his his neurons. So, so what, what what does that allow you to do that you couldn't do that with fewer glia cells? That That's a good question. We're just starting to understand all the different roles of glia cells. And um, earlier, we thought that they were just, you know, they helped clean things up and they kept, you know, uh, all the neurotransmitters at, at precise levels. But now we're learning that they could also contribute even sometimes to cognitive function. Huh. So even though we thought for, we, we ignored them uh, for, for a hundred years, um, but they can be doing, um, the, the new skinny on the street is that they're doing much more than we hmm. think uh, that they're doing. And so those are the things that can grow, that can grow and make the, the um, outer cortex bigger. The other thing that could happen is um, the synapses could increase. So you have more connections and those connections mean that your dendrites have to grow and they have to make connections with axons and that takes up more space. So there's a number of things that could happen that would make the cortex grow that is not necessarily more brain cells. Hmm. So it's a complex ecosystem. Yes, it is. (laughs) Meditation. Yeah. Um, I know that you started to explore this also. Yes. Tell me, what's the latest thought on meditation and and how it relates with your brain? Yeah, well, I think there's more and more interest in um, really understanding the neurobiology of meditation, what it's doing to your brain. Um, um, and I think one of the biggest proponents of that movement is uh, the Dalai Lama himself, yeah. who is a huge fan of science. I had the privilege of listening to him when he came to address the Society for Neuroscience, which is the largest society of neuroscientists in the world. And um, I'll never forget, he was just so cute. I, he's just so funny, so charming. Um, but one of the things that he said that was so, so interesting is that... Um, Buddhism and science have a lot more in common than you might think, because Buddhism is the uh, quest of, or it's based on asking questions and introspection and trying to understand ourselves. And that's exactly what science is doing. And um, he was a big supporter of neuroscience and has supported a lot of the um, uh, key findings in uh, studying the effects of meditation on the brain in his Tibetan Buddhist monks. And those are profound differences. Their brains are profoundly different um, in one particular uh, um, waveform, which is the, um, the gamma wave, um, is significantly enhanced, and um, especially when they meditate. So they were uh, measured with EEG, so the electrical encephalogram, which is just measured from the outside of the brain. And they would ask the monks, start to meditate. They were using a loving kindness meditation. And then stop, start, stop. And they compared it to a group of people um, with the same age that were given one week of meditation training. And the monks, when they meditated, they're you know, gamma waves went off the charts and it got much lower when, when they stopped. Um, and so that, and that's after what, 50,000 hours right. of meditation. So, but what, what is, what is it having more gamma waves? How does that help me? What, what does it allow me to experience that? I would Yeah. Mean yeah. I well, that's, meditating. that's the big question. I think those are the kinds of experiments going on right now. Got it. So, so, um, what we can, we, what we can surmise is, this is could be part of the difference that um, uh, is underlying the monk's ability to do all these things that you and I want to be to be present, um, to feel a sense of oneness, to um, all of these things that you know, ten or five years ago was like impossible to figure out what's what's going on there. But now that result that I just said is a clue to link that between um, the modern mind, which is going all the time in ADD and, and so many different things, and the, um, um, the meditative mind that 
many of us, including certainly me, and I'm sure you want to try and get to. So, so what is it doing? I think that is the instantiation of that, that, uh, that state that you get in when you meditate. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm a meditator. So I, I roll out of bed every day and yeah. at 530 I sit and, um, everything after that is different. Yeah. And if, and, and it's just my, my ritual, like uh-huh. that is how my day starts yeah. every day. It's been that way for a number of years yeah. now. And what's interesting about my experience with it is that I mean, I came to it kind of on my knees to try and just help move through something that was really challenging in my life. But yeah. what I didn't expect was how slowly over time it not only brought me from, you know, minus a hundred to zero, but yeah. from zero to really the ability to, um, drop into the present moment mm-hmm. and, and I feel like it allows me to see things. Mm-hmm that other people don't see, not mm-hmm. because of some sort of hyper-consciousness, but just yeah. because you, you, you see more clearly, I mm-hmm. think, what's actually happening rather yeah. than the illusion or the overlay right. of what you, you know, yeah. some sort of illusory thing of, you know, what could be happening in a room. I know it, it also, my practice is mindfulness. Uh-huh. So part of that practice is it's a practice of dropping. Yeah. So you're constantly let it go, let it go, let it go. Mm-hmm. And I find that that follows me through the day where if there's a challenging scenario, mm. instead of being immediately reactive, yeah. I'm much more likely to just kind of say, hey, let me take a breath. Yeah. And let me kind of zoom the lens out again. Yeah. So well, what's really happening mm-hmm. here? And what would be the deliberate way to respond yeah, to this right. in a more measured way to yeah. really create the outcome that's most beneficial for all of us? And it's given me the ability to do that on a consistent daily basis on a level that I wasn't able to tap into before, yeah. um, but I'm still like I'm still so fascinated. I'm like, but what's it actually doing to my brain? I guess yeah. you're saying the work. That's where we are. We're at the point that's where the work where needs are. to be done now. And you know, we're still at a very elementary level, and there have been a lot of studies. But it's frustrating because everybody uses a different form of meditation, yeah. and so it's so frustrating. Why right. don't you just all use the same kind so we can <laughs> compare across studies? And it's like turf wars, though. Exactly. Everybody uses their favorite kind because right. that's the best. Right. Kind, right? That's the kind I do. But um, I, I've actually experienced the same kind of um, effect with meditation, um, which is a, an enhanced detachment from. Mm, yeah. a, and I don't, I, I have a hard time thinking about it. there is a, um, a focus on the present moment. But the thing, as you were just saying, that it helps, it helps me so much is this ability to detach. It's not about my ego. It's not about what you're doing to me. It's, it's just what, what's happening. And I am able to step back more and mm. it has changed the way that I'm able to interact in my life and, and with my friends and colleagues. Yeah. So, I think yeah. it, you know, probably the easiest way for me to explain is I think meditation gives me much more ready access to the witness state mm. than I've ever had before. Mm-hmm. Not that I want to live in that state, yeah, but yeah. that allows me to pull back yes. and experience the benefits of it and yeah. then step back in right. from a different place and with a different lens. Yeah. yeah. And that's fascinating and complicated. And yeah. we just need a whole bunch of people right. that can <laughs> do that. Okay, do it now, right? Detach now. And so we can study it. It's a, it's a hard question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you about one other thing. Um, I have two timelines. Um, and I know this isn't in your book, but mm-hmm. I'm just, I have you here and I'm mm-hmm. curious about it. Um, and that is consciousness in the brain. Um, oh, yeah. have you explored the idea or, or, so I had a, a um, had a conversation with, um, somebody last year, uh-huh. neuroscientist, also a deep, long student of all sorts of mind altering processes mm-hmm. and of exploring consciousness. Yeah. And, um, and it's relation, like, can you actually, what is it? And does it exist in some identifiable place in the brain? Yeah. Um, or is it just something out there? I know I'm putting you on that sort of like on that. Yeah. I mean, that's a really fascinating, really difficult question. And I think there are, um, there are really bright people trying to, trying to get at it. Uh, and it's never satisfying mm. because to get it scientifically, you have to whittle it down to this one little paradigm that nobody thinks it's consciousness, but it's the first little baby step towards something that might be considered consciousness. And 
kind of that's where we are. So I, you know, I have not um, spent a lot of time delving into that into that literature. Um, I think it's I think there's some great minds already working on it, but um, it's 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 something that I keep in the in the periphery. It's like mm-hmm. tell me when you have something interesting, and then I'll, then I'll read it. <laughs> so the, actually, I'm going to sneak in one other question before we yeah. wrap it up. Then because we're kind of going in that direction. You spent your entire life science based. Yeah. Um, as you move further into your life, um, and, and you've essentially lived a paradigm which says prove it to be true. Mm-hmm. Is there any shift? I'm just curious in just your lens on the world. Yeah. As you sort of experience more things in life, and because I'll tell you where this is coming from. As okay. I'm, I'm very much a wonk hole, so I was always like, I want to see the signs. Show me, show me why before I'll believe right. that it's true. And the further I get into life, the more I find myself being open to the validation of phenomenon that I absolutely cannot explain mm-hmm. through any scientific methodology, through every, any evidential process. And I don't believe I'll ever be able to explain Yeah. as much as I consider myself science oriented. Uh-huh. Do you find that at all? Yeah. Just on a personal level? Very, very much. And um, I mean, at the end of the book, I try and and describe that a little bit. Um, and this is, you know, I talk about my own spirituality and, and, um, that started with meditation that started out very scientifically. Meditation is good for your attention. So I'm going to just exercise my attention by, by practicing meditation. Well, you start it and then it's like, well, it's obviously so much deeper than just a, a, an exercise in attention. And it opens up these questions of, of, um, you know, is there a, a larger force out there? And, you know, nobody believes you can, there's any proof of that. Um, yet the deeper I go into this meditation and spiritual practice, um, the more I not only believe it because of just personal experience, but the more as you, just like you, am I am able to accept it without being able to prove it scientifically. And how do I think about that? I have thought about that. I believe that there's not, unlike what I used to think, there are some questions that are not amenable to the scientific method that is in existence right now. And um, it might be a little bit naive to think that that everything in the whole universe has to be able to conform to what we believe is a scientific method right now. And... Um, but so my feeling is that there, um, I can perfectly well follow the scientific method for my science, which I do and, and I have a lot of experience in that. But I, I am much more open now to these other experiences that are not amenable to, to science. And, um, that doesn't make them any less interesting or any less worthy. Um, and I've spent a little bit of time thinking, well, how would, how would that be? How would that be? Right. And it's like, no, I can't. I can't figure it out. Right. There's other things I That's can figure a big, out better. Dark, yeah. deep rabbit hole right there, because it, it pops into my mind every once in a while when you read about, you know, extraordinary women and men of science who are also deeply faith based. Right. And you're kind of like, how do you hold that seeming duality? And yet yeah. they do. And yeah. it, that fascinates me. And not that I'm looking for any specific answer. I don't know if there ever will be one. But it just fascinates me. To, to be so devoutly evidence-based in one part of life and so devoutly accepting on an almost blind faith level of the existence of something that you will never be able to prove evidentiary, you know, through every, any evidentiary process in, in another right. part of life. But they, they have that second form of belief because of their own personal experience. Yeah, it's not exactly. no experience. Right. So, so it's, they, it's the end of one again. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, they trust in what they are experiencing in this. And that happens right. to be something that it's hard to quantify. We can't both have the same. Yeah. I don't even know whether my spirituality experience, my spiritual experience is the same as your spiritual experience. Yeah. So, um, but I do know that if I give a rat, rat, a food pellet, that's probably the same kind of experience I can give, you know, 500 different rats a food pellet, and I can study that. So, right, and if you give a rat like a, an LSD pellet yeah, or an right. ayahuasca Whatever. pellet, a Fill whole different set of experiences are going to unfold there. So um, last question, then, and yeah. this is I offer out to everybody I have the opportunity to have a conversation with, which is uh, the name of this is Good Life Project. So if yeah. I offer that term out to you to live a good life, what comes up? What does it mean for you? 
Yeah, to live a good life is to fully appreciate and to enjoy every moment. And for me, that really starts with um, kind of a, a, a base of self-love and self-appreciation and self-awareness that I could then bring out and um, share with, with everybody else. And that, to me, is a good life. Thank you. Thank you. As always, I hope you enjoyed the show this week. I'm always so excited to share these wonderful conversations and interesting people with you. Today's show, as I mentioned earlier, is sponsored by Camp GLP. It is our once-a-year amazing gathering where we take over a sleepaway camp, literally a beautiful sleepaway camp that's normally used for kids and turn it into an adult summer camp for entrepreneurs, makers, and world shakers. It's this incredible place to come together, to find people just like you, to learn, to just have a ton of fun, to make new friends, and have a complete mind-body business reset. If that sounds like something that you need, that you want, check out the details at goodlifeproject.com camp, or just check out the link in the show notes. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, signing off for Good Life Project. This is Jonathan Fields. Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.